Welcome to Beyond the Sales Floor. I'm your host, Morgan J. Ingram. And what we're going to be doing is unveiling and unpacking sales playbooks from enterprise sales leaders. This episode with Brooke, uh, we focused on how do you make onboarding more of a mechanism rather than just something randomly you're doing? So she walked through how can you make sure when you're doing enablement that you are enabling the reps in the right way? You're making sure that you're staying within the company model. And how do you help your onboarding and enablement from hybrid to virtual or virtual to hybrid? So looking forward to this conversation. Uh, it's great. Y'all are going to love it. And see y'all in there. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Sales Floor. I have Brooke here, a good friend of mine. We did a panel together. That's how we actually first met at the Sales Enablement Soiree. I'm still upset that that's not happening so hopefully someone picks that back up because that was a great event and we had some great content but brooke tell us a little bit more about yourself and then we'll dive into the questions yeah thank you so much for having me i'm excited to be here today like morgan mentioned i'm brooke coletti i'm the senior partner enablement manager at amazon web services and i'm currently supporting both our external partners as well as our internal aws employees that are partner facing so i'm excited to share with you today yeah, wealth of knowledge on the enablement side. And, and uh, we're going to dive into the first question that we ask people, which is what experiment are you running with right now that you're excited about? An experiment that I'm running is actually trackable links. And so I'm doing this for a couple different reasons. First, I'm putting these trackable links in the different methods that we're communicating to our end learner. So whether that's newsletters, announcements, or emails from our executive leadership. And I'm doing this because I want to understand what communication method the team actually pays attention to and in turn is resulting in people learning the content that we're trying to push out so that they adopt it and make those changes. The second is to get visibility into what modality people want to learn. So in each of those communication methods that I mentioned, we're including links to static static assets, e-learnings, and links to upcoming webinars. And what's really interesting is the adoption amongst what people prefer. And it's not a surprise that 48% of people prefer assets. Reason being, they can read it on their own time. They can do it in between meetings. They can skim through it to see if it's even relevant before, let's say, taking the e-learning or signing up for the webinar. But what I found to be not surprising for most of us is the e-learnings and the webinars. So webinars came in last about 23% internally so mm -hmm. far are signing up, clicking on the link and signing up for the webinar and about 29% are taking our e-learning. And so the reason I am doing this experiment, like I mentioned, is to find out what communication method is being the most effective, but also if we had to prioritize a enablement modality because of constraints of bandwidth or timeline constraints, I now will know which to prioritize and which can be a fast follow. Okay. I, I like that. I want to actually follow a follow-up question before we go into the next piece. You mentioned a fast follow. Why don't you think that people do this more often? I feel like this is a very simple strategy to go execute, to get some low-hanging fruit and to engage with people that want to possibly engage with. Why do you think this is not happening enough? And then when you say fast follow, what exactly does that mean? Like what technique are you calling, emailing, what's going on there? 
Yeah, I think first to hit on your first question, I think part of it is the pressure from leadership to have everything done before a launch or before we go live with the new process. And so I think having that pressure and wanting to deliver that gold standard every single time, I think all of us strive for. But I think at the sometimes the reality of the situation is that we have a lot of dependencies in order to get this content created, or there may be still some changes to the process or the product right before a launch, which we're enabling. And so from a bandwidth perspective, we can't update those assets. So this is something I've really actually am rigorously prioritizing when I'm looking at future um, launches I'm supporting and having to enable the team on because there's so much out of my control and I'm a downstream team that's impacted by decisions that I'm not a part of. I'm really implementing this. So when I think about fast follow, I think of based on the data I provided earlier. So my team is really leaning towards the assets and the e-learning modules which we can scale because I could use the e-learning modules as a part of continuous learning and onboarding. And so let's say the webinar, for example, is the one that has the least adoption. Is it really that big of a deal? If we're communicating effectively using multiple channels, we have the data showing that people are opening the emails, they are clicking into the information. Is it that big of a deal to maybe have a webinar a week after launch? two weeks after launch, because we do something similar in onboarding. We do something similar in continuous learning where we provide the assets and e-learning upfront as pre-work. And then we can use the webinar or a workshop style webinar to reinforce the topic. So I'm looking at these fast follows of ways for people to be able to come together to actually apply what has already been launched, maybe what they've already read previously. So I do think this is something that people should consider implementing, especially if they're exper experiencing constraints, um, whether it's resources or timeframe. No, I love that. I hopefully everyone took note of that and they can now use those different techniques and also speak to leadership with confidence to say, here's how we do it. That could be the lag in a lot of scenarios, which then kind of goes into like your viewpoint of you've been enabled for, for, for quite some time with a lot of experience. Uh, you've done different types of enablement, which is also interesting from your standpoint. So let's dive into like a top level overview of how do you view global sales enablement and how should teams be onboarding their reps in this environment we're in right now? One of the ways that I look at enablement is for onboarding and enabling those new reps is making sure we stay with the company model. So if your company is moving from virtual to hybrid, then your onboarding should also um, align with that because your onboarding should reflect the culture of your company as you're bringing in somebody to learn the culture, become one with the rest of the employees. And so what I look at um, right now with my onboarding program is we were fully virtual. And so where are the pieces of onboarding that we can move to in-person workshops? And because I'm on a global team and I do support worldwide, I also am relying with my NGO trainers or my NGO enablement leads. If you have, if you're fortunate enough to have them. What, is, what does NGO stand for? Oh, NGO. So for example, EMEA, APAC. Okay. I thought you meant like NGO, like an acronym. We just wanted everyone to know if there was an acronym we didn't know about, but in geography. Okay, cool. Yes. In geography. Okay, cool. Um, 
see assumption. Sometimes we use acronyms. We assume everyone knows what's carbs. <laughs> I just wanted to clarify because someone's gonna be like, yo, what's the NGOs? And I'm like, I don't know. We gotta figure it out. So I didn't interrupt you to make sure we clarify, but continue. Yeah. So I'm fortunate enough to have enablement leads that are located in Europe, located in um, APAC and in Latium. And so I work with them to coordinate workshops to bring those new hires in person to dig into specific topics. So like I mentioned earlier, they're learning through e-learning and assets and shadowing sessions throughout their onboarding. But let's come together and do live workshops where they're doing scenarios, having conversations that they're going to face with their partners during these workshops. So when they leave, the last thing they have in their onboarding is certification to make sure they are good to go to communicate externally and graduate essentially from onboarding. But that those workshops allow us to break any bad behaviors that they might have picked up or that they thought were a best practice through onboarding. It allows us from an onboarding team to understand where the gaps are, that maybe we need to continue building out that module, make it more clear. And so for me, I'm really evaluating how do I make onboarding hybrid? Now, some companies, as well as ours, are experiencing travel restrictions. So a lot of times, you know, companies are still not allowing their new hires to come together for an in-person event. And if that's the case, I'm exploring a backup plan, which is uh, breakout rooms. So how can I utilize breakout rooms and maybe get support from other leaders or other enablement practitioners at my company to support me in those breakout rooms so that there is a representative in each breakout room, making sure that the conversations are flowing in the right directions. They are talking about the best practices. Um, and then we come together after each workshop to, to knowledge share about what each group is talking about. Mm -hmm. This also helps with networking amongst new hires. I think sometimes we feel like we're on an island if we are remote, having to onboard by ourselves. So I found that the workshops also help with that. Um, and so that's the tactic that I'm looking at when I look at onboarding is how can I provide this high level overview of the culture, the tools and the knowledge that they need to be ready to either go on customer or partner facing calls and have that reinforcement mechanism to be confident doing so after their onboarding period. Yeah, and these strategies are extremely helpful for people to get up to speed in any organization they're at. I wanna double down on what you talked about NGO, now that we know this isn't an acronym, Bill, it's in the geography, right? So how, important is the feedback that you're getting from these sessions because you localized it. And the reason I ask this question is when I did external sales training, like I'm American. So, you know, <laughs> some places you go to, they're like, uh, you don't get it. Right. And it's important to have someone who understands region. Fortunately, I traveled a good bit. So I was able to do a little bit of localization, but it's always more important if someone is actually in that region especially the the Indias, the Singapore's, the Europe or multiple places in Europe, like Germany and France are two different things. So how important was that feedback that you were getting to get people up to speed and how much appreciation do they have for enablement? I think this is just an important conversation to talk about, uh, especially what's happening right now. I think it's absolutely critical. And that's a conversation that is continuously ongoing about even the communication, something as simple, simple as communications to these teams. How do we get those emails localized? because I do think that extra effort really goes a long way because I'm an American as well. And so if everything is coming from the America's team, 
then the teams that are located in the other geographical regions may not feel included as a part of that culture. And so the feedback that I get is really interesting as well. And I think it's really important to loop in your counterparts from those geos. And if you don't have someone to meet with people that are located there, because sometimes words can be used interchangeably. And so that can, making sure you have that conversation limits any possible confusion. The other thing is if the culture there is different, if some of the processes may be different, then you want to make sure that the content reflects some of the nuances and the way that other countries do business in the material that you're serving there. And so I do think that this is a really important thing to consider when doing onboarding. I do think onboarding has a progression. So if you're just starting your onboarding program, you need to start maybe in the geo that you know the most and then slowly progress to be become more um, global. But I do think this is so important for that reason, for that feedback. And some of the feedback we we got has been really positive. Some has been, you know, we actually don't do business in the same manner. And so we have to recreate an entire new e-learning that is just surfaced in a different geo. And so I do think it's important. And I think it's a miss yep. if people are trying to not do this with any topics, even outside of onboarding. You heard it first. It's a miss if you don't do this. So you should get on it. Uh, so we've talked a lot about coaching and training. You mentioned tools. What are some other best practices that you've learned regarding enablement strategy that you're leveraging inside the organizations that you've been in or even today? Yeah, for me, alignments, I think is key on anything that we do. So I know we were just talking about onboarding. And so for example, when we talk about alignment, for me, that's making sure I understand from a manager's perspective, what does being quote unquote onboarded actually mean? And the reason I have these conversations is one, I want to fully understand what is expected from enablement because I want to make sure that I'm earning trust with those managers and my stakeholders for them to feel like enablement is providing value and impact and preparing their teams to get on um, their partner facing calls and do their day to day. But also the second thing that this alignment helps with is having leaders fully understand what is expected of them. So from a coaching and reinforcement standpoint, they understand what the new hires need to know coming out of onboarding, what they are learning so that we have that reinforcement mechanism after onboarding. So for me, I would say, I don't know if it's really a strategy. I think yeah. <laughs> most people forget about it, but it seems very basic, but it's what is that alignment so that we can better understand, again, if we know the definition of what onboarding is, from an enablement standpoint, we can now tie metrics to it. We can understand what the leaders care about. So we could be tracking and working backwards from the same thing. Um, the other strategy I've used, and I know um, we're on the topic of onboarding, but yep. it's really assigning an onboarding buddy. I got assigned an onboarding buddy when I started at Amazon and I still reach out for questions and they're there to help mentor and guide, whether it's a cultural related question I have or a process related. Um, and another one is shadowing or assigning um, someone to work with for dedicated topics that will demonstrate the best practices to help this new hire replicate and learn from. So those are really strategies that I use, but I think it all goes back to that alignment. 
So everything is working backwards from what the expectation is of the team I'm trying to enable. Right. No, I think that the expectation is always important because like, otherwise you'll just come up with your own playbook and not really see what's going on, which leads into like a really important question, which is we've talked about onboarding. We've talked about some tech. We've talked about just enablement within the different geographic regions. What data points are you looking at to make sure that the strategy is actually working rather than just saying, oh, this feels great. Like, no, this is actually working for our teams. Yeah, there's a couple data points I look at. I think it really, for me, depends on what are the focuses that we're enabling on. So if I'm enabling, let's say, on a product launch, an upcoming product launch, I need to understand what is the impact of that product launch. What are we expecting the teams to do? What are the behavior changes that we're expecting to be implemented after the enablement session happens? And that's going to allow me to understand what metrics to monitor. And I am a huge advocate for trying to build dashboards where you can. And the reason is so that I can monitor and have everything I've enabled throughout, let's say, a year or beyond on a single dashboard so I can continue to monitor and not lose sight of that. So this slate makes enablement less transactional, meaning I enable on one thing. Okay, let me focus on this other thing. It's we should be continuing to monitor everything that we're enabling because what we're enabling on should continue to build on other topics that we've enabled internally so that we can progress and get better overall, right? And so building that dashboard helps um, to be able to monitor and keep track of all of those trends. It also gives visibility to leaders. So you can share that dashboard with your leadership team or stakeholders who maybe own the product or maybe actually own those um, topics that you are enabling. So now they have a stake in the game. They can look at the dashboard and also monitor, hey, I see there's a decrease in my product that I owned and um, the team's not selling it. So maybe we should do a cross-sell training or a refresher on this specific product and the value proposition, et cetera. And so for me, I really tailor the metric space and what I'm looking at. And I look at a combination of metrics. I look at them in two buckets. So one that enablement owns and one that enablement influences so that I can get a holistic view of is the strategy that we're implementing working. Right. And so this goes back to what I'm experimenting on is the effort that enablement is putting in getting impact. Are people actually viewing and seeing what we're doing, especially being at Amazon, everything we are doing is at scale. So there's a lot of information coming at our end stakeholders that we want them to learn and adopt and talk with their partners about. And so some of the things I look at that I would say enablement has more control over or Mm. maybe owns is like accreditation. If we're putting out a graduation process as a part of onboarding, and we expect them to go through that as a part of completing onboarding, that is something that enablement drives in partnership with sales leaders. Another one is, you know, you think about the Kirkpatrick model, it's it's level one, but you got the CSAT, you got base, base metrics. So I always, any enablement initiative I do, I want base metrics. I want to understand what is the current adoption before the training, so then I can monitor what the adoption is after the training to see if there's been any um, shift and change. Um, another one is how many e-learnings have you created? How many communications have you sent out? Those aren't, those are more 
here's what enablement is doing. It does not provide the impact of that enablement, but it is still a good metric to have an understanding about enablement's business and what we're actually working on. I think the ones that we influence are more impactful when you look at, here's the enablement I delivered. And then when you're looking at the impact that we're making, and so these are the ones I focus on. Sometimes they're harder to get depending on the organization you're in, whether you have a limitation on the data that you can access or whether um, your tools are hard to pull data from. But some of these metrics include deal velocity. So if I'm doing a discovery call or a demo effectiveness training, I want to understand if deals are stuck on the demo stage um, before the training, how are they, how's deal velocity tracking after the training? The other one is if I'm doing a prospecting training, do I see after I teach the team how to utilize the tool, I talk about messaging, do I notice that net new pipeline is being created at a higher rate than before the training? Another one can be average deal size. So if we're doing co-sell training or um, cross-sell, are the deal sizes becoming bigger now that we're tacking on other services on top of the deals that were already in the pipeline? And then the last one, time to revenue, ramp time, right? Going back to onboarding. So those are a couple metrics that I look at because those metrics are tied to a potential company goal. And so I also challenge for those that are listening to really understand what your company goals are and then work backwards from there to determine what met what enablement metrics, whether they're owned or influenced, tie to those company goals and then try to focus on those. I love that. I think that's a good blueprint for everyone to follow from here and start to look at their metrics in a very succinct and complete way. Uh, and then you you may have already answered this throughout our conversation, but we always ask this at the end, which is as a sales enablement leader, what do you think people should be doing that they're currently not doing? So I know earlier we talked about the fast follows. I think that's a good takeaway is yeah, that's a good one. Sometimes in enablement, there are some things out of your control because we may be a downstream team that is receiving information. So mm -hmm. I think the fast follow is a good one. I think the other one is re constantly reevaluating and reprioritizing the programs you're working on. So this goes back to the metrics that we just talked about and making sure they're aligned to your company goals. If your company goals have shifted or changed, reevaluate your programs to make sure that they're still aligned to those goals, to make sure that you're delivering the right impact within your organization. And also by reevaluating your programs, you're understanding, are there things that are working internally still? Are there things that used to work? And now that the, the potential culture or the way that you're selling or the way that you're doing business with your partners have changed, you may have to change the content to match how your company is evolving. So I do think reevaluating your programs on whatever cadence works for your custom, your company is one of the things that we should all be doing, especially going into Q4 for a lot of us and going into Q1 and hitting the ground running next year. I love it. So y'all, there is a tons of jam pack information here for y'all to use. Brooke, thank you so much for taking your time to share your enabler strategies and what's been working with you and what you've been doing to see success. So we appreciate your time and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you so much for having me.